Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey everyone, and welcome to Space to Grow, a podcast focused on what it will take to sustainably develop our rapidly growing space economy. This is Chris Blackerby coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. And this is Charity Whedon in Washington, D.C. We have another exciting conversation today about orbital sustainability. This time we have a fascinating guest who talked with us about a topic we really don't usually associate with each other, space and archaeology. So space and archaeology, when I hear that, Charity, I'm thinking we're talking about like excavating all of those ancient civilizations on Mars, right? No, <laughs> maybe that's another different episode. It's going to be a future episodes. I know there will be. Things. I'm I'm happy to give my unvarnished thoughts about human habitats another time. <laughs> uh, but what we're talking about today is thinking through what impact humans have had on outer space so far, and the desire and necessity of preserving our collective space heritage. Yeah, and this ties in. It just ties in so nicely with the multidisciplinary podcast that we're trying to create here, which is all about a sustainable future for all. And there's a cultural element to this endeavor, and we have to be aware of that. We have we have choices to make on preserving our space heritage, but also paying attention to the impact it has. There's this balance that we need to understand. And understanding if one person's trash is another's cultural heritage. Yeah, and it definitely is. So uh, it's it's all about definitions. And here to walk us through these definitions in this fascinating topic is an expert in this field. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Alice Gorman, who is connected to us from Australia. She has a BA and PhD in archaeology and initially focused on indigenous heritage management, where she provided advice for the mining industry, urban development, and government departments working with local groups and, and native uh, uh, groups in, uh, in, in Australia. So her specialty was on stone tool analysis and the Aboriginal use of these before European settlement. But then she's going to talk about in the podcast how she became uh, inspired to look at space as, as the next step on, uh, on, on this for archaeology. So all of the topics there on terrestrial archaeology are a fascinating podcast in itself. Uh, but, uh, but, but she's in this growing field of space archaeology. So right now she's based at Flinders University in Adelaide, and she's a senior member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, former deputy chair of the Space Industry Association of Australia, and her research has been featured on a bunch of magazines, National Geographic, New Scientist, Archaeology. She's a member of the International Space University. She's all over the place. She's got an active Twitter feed at Dr. Space Junk. Uh, she's written a book on it. So uh, she is the person to talk to on this. So it's a really fun conversation. We dived into a bunch of different stuff, Charity and I, with her. She um, has quite the journey. It's a really yeah, great story. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. So uh, we're excited for you to listen. So let's get started. Dr. Alice Gorman. Alice, welcome to Space to Grow. It's uh, it's really good to have you on here, and we're so glad we can get you. Uh, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So um, we we always uh, we always like to start to dive into what brings our guests to where they are now. So uh, I first want to ask about your background, and so uh, what inspired you to get into archaeology, which is you started as a traditional archaeology background when you went to school, and then switching that into space. What was what what drove you to 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 get to where you are now? Well, well, it's true. People are often very very surprised to see space and archaeology 
in the same sentence because archaeology is supposedly focused on the past and space, of course, is present and future. But when I was a child, I, I had two passions. I was interested in the stars and astronomy and astrophysics. And I was interested in finding out how humans came to be as they were. And I guess as I went through my primary school and high school years, I, I focused on both things. So, I, you know, I did a lot of sciences as well throughout that whole period. But I became more focused on, on that big question of, of what does it mean to be human? How did we get to where we are now? And what does all of that mean? So this led me down the path of becoming a, a fairly regular kind of archaeologist. So because I'm in Australia, my work was focused on uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous archaeological sites and I developed an expertise in the analysis of stone tools. And this was, you know, fascinating and satisfying work. And I also did a lot of work as a heritage consultant uh, working for development and, uh, and mining. So there was a period of my life when I was uh, in the Hunter Valley working on the heritage aspects of coal mines for I don't know, six months out of every year, I was tramping around the landscape while there were drilling rigs and blasting happening all around me. And I did actually at one point think if I've absolutely failed to become a professional archaeologist, I want to drive one of those massive trucks that are the size of a four-story building <laughs> that go all the way down to the bottom of an open cut pit and all the way up the top. So that was my backup career. So that was my life for a, a long time until I think I was, I think I was in my early 30s and I'd finished my PhD and I was working on a, a huge cultural heritage project in central Queensland and everything changed overnight. One evening when I came back from being in the field all day and went out onto my veranda with a beer and just sat looking up at the night sky. And for some reason, I don't even know why, the thought just popped into my head that what I was looking at, along with all of the stars, was space junk that humans had put into Earth orbit. And then I hmm. thought, this is an archaeological record, just like the one on Earth that I'm currently investigating interesting and then i thought okay so it's archaeology but it could also have heritage value and that was it so from that night onwards i started to to go back to that childhood passion and, and re-immerse myself in space and you know i'd spent a whole career learning about and trying to understand uh, you know, human behaviour in the past and in Australia particularly. And now I had to start from scratch again and learn everything that I hadn't been paying attention to that had happened in space for all of this time. What a great story. And at a certain... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, it's like, it's like, just, it's like watching a movie say, in my so... mind of seeing you standing out there going through all that. Sorry, continue. Yeah, I'm on that veranda with you. Yeah, me you, too. I'm right Alice, there. And I'm staring up at the stars. And, and the, beer, just... the beer tastes great as well. So, oh, yeah. the beer was so yeah, good. Can, it was I the height of summer oh, and field work and all of that stuff. The beer was so good. 
Um, but it was so it was I'd made I made the decision. I thought I'm I'm going to actually start working on space. But at that time I was, you know, I, I moved from that consulting project to working for the Queensland Environmental Protection Agency uh, in the heritage branch. And I realized that I was isolated up there. Like I, there weren't any other people working in space. I needed access to resources that just weren't up there. So this is kind of, you know, early internet days. So there was so much that you couldn't get hold of. And I realized I was going to have to leave. I was going to have to go somewhere else if I actually wanted to make this space archaeology thing happen. I want to know how you how you connected space and archaeology with anyone around the world, because I, I think it's, it's a very new concept, isn't it? Well, even back then, well, there's a, there's a bit more of a story here as well. <laughs> so Keep going. This was, I want to keep hearing. This was about 2000, 2000 2001. And yeah, like I, I didn't know if anybody else had thought of this before or if there was anyone else working in this area. And that year, so every year, the Australian Archaeological Association has its big annual conference. It's not big compared to, you know, space conferences like the IAC or the American Archaeology and Anthropology Conferences. It's about 500 people. And I went to this conference and I met one of my cousins there who also worked in Heritage. And, and I said to her, I've had this idea. I'm going to start applying all of my archaeological knowledge to stuff that's in space. And she was, this is unbelievable. I have someone I want you to meet. I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? So at that conference, she introduced me to John Campbell, who was a professor of archaeology at James Cook University in Cairns. And he also had been working on space archaeology. He kind of had a very broad, big picture view. He was kind of interested in SETI as well and kind of the place of humans in the whole cosmos. And he said to me, well, there is another space archaeologist in the US, Beth Laura O'Leary. And she had been making a catalogue of all of the objects that were left at the Apollo 11 landing site at Tranquility Base on the moon. So she was the first lunar archaeologist and she and he were going to be at a conference in Washington, D.C. in 2003. And he said to me, well, you've got to come. You've got to come and talk about your ideas about space junk and orbital heritage. So suddenly there were three of us, three of us in the whole world who were thinking about how to do archaeology in space. So that was a bit of a turning point. And that was 2003, you said? That was 2003. So, of course, one of the, the issues here was that people, people are like, what is this? Like, they thought it was kooky. They thought it was irrelevant. And they were maybe not very interested in um, being supportive of developing this new field. And something I had to do was absolutely rule out any engagement with what what we would call astrobiology or xenoarchaeology 
or SETI. I had to say, I'm not going to do aliens because this will automatically make people uh, be dismissive of this idea. Yeah, true. So I had to very carefully demarcate some lines around this in order just to build build some credibility for the idea that space archaeology could be a thing. And now, of course, it's 2021. I wouldn't say that there are many more space archaeologists in the world. There's maybe about 10 people who are actively researching in this area. But I would say that over that time, it's no longer a strange idea. People are no longer thinking that, you know, it's irrelevant. And we know it's not irrelevant now because there's so much activity in space at the moment. People are talking about sustainability. People are talking about the environment and human interactions with the environment is this, the subject area of archaeology. And some of the amazing places that are in Earth orbit and that are on other celestial bodies are actually under threat. So at this point in time, understanding space archaeology and the heritage implications are not irrelevant anymore. In fact, they're starting to play a larger role in how people think of how we should engage with space. Can you give us an example of what is orbital heritage? One person's junk might be another person's treasure. So I'm trying to, you know, wrap my head around, you know, is, is that expanded upper stage rocket, um, you know, a, a piece of heritage if it was the first to deliver something to orbit? Or is it something that we would see on the ground as a pollution item? I'd love to hear your thoughts. That's such an interesting question, because of course, we have this term space junk, or space debris. And the implications of that is that the material that's in orbit that is not currently being used for some kind of service that we desire on Earth is useless. It plays no role and it shouldn't be there. And of course, we, we know, and, and you know more than anyone, that there are major issues with the amount of material that's in orbit and the risks that it provides to future space industry. But that word junk just covers so much, so many much more complex and interesting issues about the way humans have engaged with orbit. And I think rocket bodies are a great example. So they, they are one of the major risks of uh, fragmentation and collision. Low Earth orbit is full of them. And they also feature highly in, in sort of target lists for the debris that needs to be removed. So, so they're very high-risk things in general. And, of course, they're, they're, while they're in low Earth orbit and are constantly re-entering, we're also constantly adding more to that population. From a heritage perspective, though, I would look at this and say, well, we have um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of some particular upper stage rockets and we know that we need to get rid of many of them but do we need to get rid of all of them can we leave a sample still in orbit to represent that aspect of the archaeological record that we have up there so um there's i can't remember the figures off the top of my head but there's um cosmos rocket bodies it's a fairly generic name for russian launches but they tend to get called that like i think there's 500 or more of them up there 
so we can afford to get rid of a whole bunch of them. We don't really, we don't need them. They're not demonstrating anything. They're all fairly similar. And maybe we can identify some that are a lower collision risk or lower fragmentation list risk and say, so, all right, let's leave that up there as a sample. And then there are other rocket body types like the Agena, which uh, was very widely used in the US space program and uh, played a big role in the development of uh, perfecting docking maneuvers and in the preparation for the Apollo program. So the Agena, there's heaps of them as well, but they're not made anymore. They're not used anymore. So they have slightly higher historic significance, you could say. So what we'd need to do is do a thorough survey of everything that's up there at the moment and taking into account, of course, this is a very dynamic environment. This is changing all the time and work out what's significant, why it's significant, how many of these things there are, what risk they present and what heritage aspects it would be good to preserve. So that's kind of how I would approach the whole rocket body thing. So it's a, it's a, more complicated question than than I anticipated. So that's it's interesting of all these elements that go into that decision. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then no, no. And then the satellite. I mean, that's the same thought process with with satellites that are up there, of course. But then, what would be the what would be the goal in your mind? I mean, looking down long term. So you said leave a couple of those up there as a uh, you know an archaeology, a, 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 a orbital heritage, and protect it for that reason to then study it or to be a museum piece eventually i mean when when we have the capability would you would you think bring it back to earth or is it going to be left up there to be an orbital museum or what's there i mean this is we're thinking yeah. a little bit longer into the future but what's the what's the long term on that i think there's a lot of aspects to this so so one way to look at this is if you look at regular terrestrial archaeology even 10 years ago it was impossible to extract DNA from so many materials. And further in the past than that, you know, you couldn't do it at all. Uh, now, DNA analysis of archaeological remains is incredibly common, incredibly easy and incredibly cheap. And we're learning so much from that. So something we don't know is what techniques will be available to us in the future to look at this archaeological record. So one of the big principles in archaeology is that you always leave something there for future studies because you've got no idea what techniques will be available and what questions will be asked. And with a lot of this stuff, one of the questions is something we call in archaeology taphonomy, which is how materials decay. So we've had stuff in space for a bit over 60 years. And we don't know a lot about this yet, primarily because we're reliant on data gathered from the ground mostly to tell us what has happened to the surface of spacecraft materials. We do have some uh, return spacecraft studies, but not actually that many of them. So there's a very practical aspect to this, which is if we retain some of these rocket bodies in orbit into the future, we have the capacity to look at the impacts of the space environment on those materials and in those orbital locations. So that's that's a good reason uh, to think about doing it. Another one is a bit of a thought experiment, I guess. So, so we say, well, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 
if somebody is looking at what's in orbit in order to figure out something about how humans got into space in the 20th and 21st centuries, they will be able to see some of the early examples of the technologies used. So, you know, we're probably heading down a path where, uh, you know, your classic three-stage rocket launch is, you know, it's starting to be rather frowned upon at the moment and people are working on different propulsions, um, on, you know, reusable rocket components, all of that kind of stuff. So we, we would hope that in the future you could see, you could track the evolution and change of uh, human technologies in space because some of this stuff remains there because it won't remain on Earth. And uh, I think something I think that's really interesting about rockets, like we have the vision in our head of the complete rocket and it gets launched. And the rocket is, it is actually a sort of a mythical object because it doesn't exist until it's assembled just prior to launch. You know, the launch itself takes minutes and then it breaks up. So whole rockets only exist for a very narrow window of time. And then they're gone. And I so, might say the human interest in a rocket is probably the most of all the components, isn't it? Do you feel mm, that? That's a very interesting observation. And we know that people have, we, we can see, you know, people love rocket launches. They, there's a whole cult following that, that is built around them. Um, and that's part of the social significance of these objects. But interestingly, once that upper stage is up in low Earth orbit, it doesn't have the same pull or attraction for people. It's now rubbish mm. that people don't think about. It's true. So there's, there's different kind of emotional attachments to different stages of this whole process, I guess. Um, but the, another part of your question was, you know, in the future, will people go and visit these places and I think they will that's going to be a fair bit in the future because we simply you know nobody can afford the fuel to go zipping around in orbit if we could do that we'd be taking stuff out we wouldn't be taking tourists you know around to get a close look at Vanguard 1 but we do have to think about that as well so so the other example I often use for this is the Vanguard 1 satellite the oldest human object in orbit, and also the Vanguard rocket body, which is also still in orbit. So the two oldest things in space. And Vanguard 1, of course, it's it's a beautiful satellite. It's a polished silver sphere with little square solar panels on the side and six antennae sticking out uh, perpendicular to the body. So it's a little bit like Sputnik 1, which everybody knows the shape of, another polished silver sphere, but the antennas come down at angles. So it looks more like a sea creature. And Vanguard 1 has that early space age aesthetic. And I think it's quite beautiful. I mean, nobody makes a polished silver sphere for a satellite anymore. But they were quite common in the early space age. So I think there would be people who want to go and physically see, be in the presence of that spacecraft. And now, of course, we have so much we can do remotely or virtually these days. 
And I suspect in future a lot of space travel is not going to be in person. It is going to be by proxy through robots and other sensory interfaces. But there really is something about the object itself. So the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. is one of the most visited museums in the entire world. And one of the reasons for this is because being in the presence of an actual space-blown object or something that you can engage with with your senses, you can get a sense of how big something is, what it's made of, how the light reflects from it, what colours it is. That is a unique experience that you cannot have if you're looking at a picture or an image or in a virtual reality world. There's really something about the physicality of these artefacts that people relate strongly to. So at some point, I am sure there's going to be like a little heritage trail where people will go and have a look at Vanguard One. They might oh, go wow, and have that's a look interesting. at <laughs> the, the national satellites that belong to their country if, if they have been kept. I suppose the end result of this is we also need a sample of different spacecraft that appeal to different communities. Another one of my favourites is Palapa A1, which is Indonesia's first satellite launched in 1976. So you know, this isn't a spacecraft that is is lauded and heralded in all the space history books, but it's terribly significant to the people of Indonesia because it was a symbol of unifying Indonesia's many thousands of islands and many thousands of disparate languages. So, and it's still in orbit, it's a piece of space junk, but it's physical evidence of Indonesia's space heritage. And for that community of people, I think they would hate to see it just, you know, tipped back into the atmosphere. It's so interesting. So then if we're going to have people out there touring in in X amount of decades or centuries uh, and taking a look at these, we want to make sure that the environment in which they're touring is clean. Uh, oh. obviously and that's and that's where we we come in on trying to clean up that stuff so we need that identification and you've you've highlighted a couple that that you find as as really culturally significant um as as we know uh when well as maybe our listeners don't all know but when when a, when an object from space is launched it's the uh, responsibility of that launching state in perpetuity so whatever's up there is the responsibility of whatever country. That Indonesian satellite is the responsibility of, of the Indonesian government. So uh, I assume, are you also talking to these governments to identify these highest order cultural heritage sites so that when when a company like us, like Astroscale, goes and starts talking and trying to remove some of these, we can say, okay, let's 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 keep this one and let's keep that one for future generations, but let's bring down the others. So are there, are there countries that uh, have expressed an interest in identifying these with you so far? And, and are there many or what's the, what's the background on that? Well, I have to say that no country has ever come to me and said, oh, would you mind just helping us out identifying our space heritage? But I would be absolutely open to that happening. What I think is likely to be the easiest way to manage this is to take one of the big catalogues or databases of space objects and add in a heritage layer. So we have things like the the UN register of uh, space objects. We have uh, most of the major space agencies have their own catalogues and there's some publicly available 
um, catalogues as well of tracked objects. So we just need to add a few more columns in there, to, which will indicate what the cultural significance um, of these things are. Ideally, you would get heritage experts from each country to firstly identify what that country still had that was left in orbit, then to assess its cultural significance, which you do. Uh, I've talked a little bit about how you do that already, but there's um, you would look at its historic significance, uh, its research significance, what we could learn by having it still in existence, uh, how it relates to communities, that's social significance and sometimes spiritual significance as well. So you would, you would assess that, you would assess something as having uh, sort of a, a high level of heritage significance or a low level and there's grades in between. And all of this information would be in one of the catalogues. So let's just say a conjunction analysis is performed and it looks like a heritage satellite is likely going to collide with a functioning satellite and you know I don't have to tell you this but often there's there's sort of limited options there so only one of the spacecraft will have the ability to maneuver if it has that even but you can have a look at uh, what what needs to be done you can assess what needs to be done based on accurate information and a lot of the time, um, the functioning satellite is going to, if it has the capacity to manoeuvre, it will have to get out of the way because the piece of junk will not have that capacity. But if in advance of that, we have the, the it's possible to say, right, this is going to happen. We've got a, a possible collision coming up. Let's get rid of the thing that's the piece of junk that is going to, to provide that collision. Um, you can say, all right, we need to get rid of it or we need to shove it to a different orbit. This, of course, is going to be a fair way in the future. I suppose it's just about having the information to make informed decisions so that people just don't unnecessarily destroy things that don't need to be destroyed. There's in the heritage world, there's a, a mantra that comes from a very famous Australian um, charter, the Borough Charter, and it says, do as much as is necessary, but as little as possible. And the good news for that, for space operators, is that's usually the cheapest option as well, because if it's anything like on Earth, nobody wants to spend money on heritage. So having something practical like that can be uh, a good basis for decision making. I really like that idea. And it just, it just flows so many other ideas of like, do we need a museum orbit, right? Like to protect these, these items that are the way of, of debris. Oh, that's, um, that's also a really mm -hmm. interesting idea. So we kind of have one already, which is the graveyard orbit above True. geostationary. You could say that was a museum orbit because that's where uh, things get parked to keep them out of the way. Ideally, you leave things where they are because that's part of their setting and that gives us information about what their original purpose was. Um, so if you don't have to move something, then you shouldn't. But if you do have to move something, I suppose the options are remove it back to Earth or move it somewhere where it will be safer, where maybe people can go and see it 
and where the risks are going to be much, much lower. But of course, you know, things don't stay put in space, do they? So like, where is that place going to be? If something doesn't have the capacity to station keep, it will just drift eventually. So how do we keep these things secure? Some people have proposed uh, Lagrange points as locations where we could park stuff that we want to keep. And we're probably not going to be able to do that for quite some time either. Now, it's a tough one in low Earth orbit, as you mentioned. Um, uh, things are moving. They're, they're falling all the time. So we need to do something with them. Uh, I think the first step identifying as you're doing is, is a great first step uh, and just raising awareness about it because uh, raising awareness about the heritage sites I think also leads to raising of awareness about the orbital environment as a natural resource, uh, similar to terrestrial environments. So that's something we talk about, and I, I think I've seen you mention it as well, that the orbital environment should be treated as a natural resource. And so if we can identify you know, how to make that natural resource clean and, and sustainable and usable, I think identifying the things that, that you're talking about is a great way to, uh, to couple those ideas together. I completely agree, and I think it goes further than that even. So we know that having public support for space programs is is critical uh, for maintaining government support and funding. And a lot of people feel quite disconnected from space. You know, they, they think of it as something that's out there that they can't see, maybe something that wealthy nations can do and other nations just have to stand by and be grateful for the crumbs that they're dropped from the table. Um, but every country uses space services in some way and most of them actually have space installations like tracking stations, for example, or ground stations of other kinds. And when you look at the heritage of what's in orbit above our heads and connect it to what's on the ground and look at some of the incredible and fascinating stories behind the objects and the ground infrastructure, something I've been doing over the last few years is looking at Nigeria's space history, which is really, really interesting. You actually give people a way to connect with space through that heritage that they didn't have before. And I think that's something that helps foster public support for space programs and helps foster awareness of the space environment, exactly as you say. And I think it's, it, it can help connect people so, again, they can not feel excluded from space but feel they have a, a say, they can be part of decision-making. So... I think there's lots and lots of advantages to looking at this stuff we call space junk as cultural objects connected to people and communities in their history. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, I would love to kind of move out to the moon now and get your take on what is a vibrant conversation ongoing right now on lunar heritage and, and what mm -hmm. that means. Could you give us kind of an overview what this topic is and, and why it's so important right now. So the moon is the most dense place with human material culture after the earth. And missions have been sent to the moon since 1959. There are over 60 locations on the surface where 
the spacecraft of a range of different nations have soft landed or crash landed. And of course, we have the six human landing sites from the Apollo program. So this is an incredibly rich archaeological record that spans the entire space age. And what makes the moon even more interesting is it's not just a little dot of light in the sky. The moon is something that has played such an incredibly huge role in human spiritual beliefs, in science, in subsistence and day-to-day -day life for since before humans even existed. So, so its role in human life cannot be underestimated. And now, of course, it has this layer of human technology that arose in the space age. So this has always been something of interest to space archaeologists. But for a long, long time, the only threats to the survival of these places on the moon were just the lunar environment because there were no serious plans for returning to the moon. Now, that, of course, has all changed. It may be in the last, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, and now, particularly with um, NASA's uh, Artemis program, um, China is accelerating its interest in the moon. Numerous other nations are planning missions to the moon. So suddenly we have a situation where these archaeological sites, this heritage of the people of Earth, could be impacted by surface activities. These could take a number of forms. So obviously people are very, very keen to go and utilise lunar resources, whether that's for future markets on Earth or for in situ resources utilisation where they're going to be trying to sustain longer term surface habitation. And lunar mining is going to have impacts just as it does on Earth as well. So we have a situation where it's quite possible that uh, the landing site of a future mission could be on or near an existing site or an existing site might be in the middle of some kind of mineral deposit that's of interest uh, or we're going to have people living and operating on the surface who can regularly go to some of these places. And the thing about them is that they're incredibly fragile. So all it would take is a rocket landing somewhat near any of the Apollo sites for all of those iconic boot prints to be blown away and for the very sharp abrasive lunar dust to start eroding the surfaces of all of the spacecraft and equipment that are left at these sites. So human activity on the moon is going to have a very deleterious effect on the survival of these places. So the good news is that there is a growing awareness that this could be an issue. And the bad news is there's not terrible lot of options right at the moment. So since 2011, uh, NASA set up uh, uh, some guidelines for how to carry out operations in order to minimise the damage to the Apollo sites and the other US sites. And these guidelines apply very well to, to sort of any human site on the moon, but they're just guidelines, they can't be enforced. And just recently in December, um, a piece of legislation was passed in the US, the One Small Step Act, which aims to protect the six Apollo sites and explicitly names the NASA guidelines as a document that should be followed. 
So this is a really positive move as well. The, the problem is on the moon, it's very difficult to enforce um, heritage protection on Earth even because people um, have to prove or, or you know, um, heritage agencies have to be able to prove that someone deliberately destroyed a site. And on the moon, how are we going to prove that? That's going to be very difficult. Uh, there's also a great interest in retrieving materials from the earlier sites just so we can see what the effects of the lunar environment have been on these materials. So this is critical information for planning future missions. However, the, the way this the approach to this has been in the past has been, well, you know, you just go somewhere and take something. And we really need strong guidelines around this. I mean, first of all, legally, the objects on the moon belong to the launching state, as we've already alluded to. So you can't go and take someone else's um, lunar heritage without possibly getting into trouble. Uh, the second thing is in order to, particularly for the Apollo sites, in order to even approach the site, you risk damaging it. To get close enough to remove a piece of material that you can take back and analyse basically involves you stirring up lunar dust, obliterating the footprints or the rover tracks and causing damage to the site. So you would destroy the site in the process of removing something. Now, this is where it's critical to have key um, archaeological input. People are actually experts in this talking about these things because this is kind of what we do for a living on Earth as well. Um, so if you do need to sample something, then we need a very systematic process. And I think the, the new act uh, goes some way to thinking about how this might be done as well. You would have to come back to this thing we talked about before, which is representativeness. So any sample of material you took uh, would have to not be the only type of that material on the moon. We'd have to know there was plenty more of it if we needed to compare. It would have to be a material that bears at least some resemblance to the ones that are being used or planned now. There's no point having an analogy for the impact of the lunar environment on something that, you know, nobody is making spacecraft out of at the moment. So you have to take all of that into account as well. And you have to somehow get it without damaging the other parts. So, so if you were looking at, you know, the impact of um, high energy particles from outer space, UV light, um, lunar dust on uh, a typical spacecraft material from the Apollo era, let's say, the process of gathering, of collecting that sample could actually ruin all of the other surfaces because your intervention would accelerate the abrasion uh, on those surfaces. So they would not be available for um, analysis in the same way anymore. There's a lot of things to consider here. Wow. So many, yeah detailed like technical issues to to rec to recognize and then and then political i think as you're referencing too i mean the us is the only one that has uh a, you know a significant number of objects up there and so we need buy-in from other countries because they're all going to be wanting to to utilize the moon and maybe not necessarily thinking about us cultural heritage well there's you know there's material remains there from china india yeah. Uh, European Space Agency, Japan, Australia even has a couple of little things up there as well. Um, mm. So I think in terms of getting that buy-in, I think it's 
you can definitely make a case um, that that all the other countries who have material on the moon, you know, should have an interest or should be interested in in exploring what it means for their heritage. Um, and that, of course, you also have the story that it's the, the heritage of humanity. And um, I think we've seen with the Artemis Accords that the US is is very conscious of the fact that that identifying heritage is something that can um, demonstrate its good intentions and goodwill uh, and can also draw in other nations who are interested in in signing up to say yes we will we will be conscious of heritage we will protect this heritage um, and really what it all comes down to is planning so I mean there's a lot of the, the argument I make, so one of the major obstacles to any surface operations and any lunar mining at the moment is the impact of dust. So dust is abrasive. It can wear uh, seals down, for example. It can uh, cover uh, equipment uh, and instruments that need to be read, you know, so it's a bit hard to laser range to something if, if, the, um, the, um, if it's completely covered with dust. And uh, it also can clog equipment up and stop it from working. It's highly transportable. So one of the fears is that if there was a lot of, you know, to and fro on the surface, that you could stir up enough lunar dust to create a cloud around the moon, a cloud of dust around the moon. So before... So you're saying we got start... problems coming. <laughs> Yeah, we got problem coming. And and you know, when, when you see in the news stories about lunar mining, they rarely discuss the fact that we have not solved the dust problem. And in, in Australia, people are very interested in applying our automated mining expertise to the moon. But that's not going to help you much if the material won't work in the dust conditions. Yeah, it's a similar thing that you have to deal with as an archaeologist on the ground, right? I mean, having to make sure you don't destroy the artifact in the process of studying it yes exactly you're absolutely yeah. right um so the the good news from my perspective is that the dust can damage the heritage sites but it can also prevent surface operations so there's two you can kill two birds with one stone there figure out how to deal with lunar dust and we can both protect the heritage and allow human activities to keep going so for my money, that's what people need to be focusing on. Yeah, we want to look for that. So, um, boy, we could talk for so long on all of these topics. I feel like there's so many more questions that I want to ask, but I, I do. I am conscious of your time uh, as well, Alice. A couple more questions. Uh, switching gears just a bit. Um, I know you're a mentor for the UN Space for Women group, and that's something. This idea of the importance of female role models is is so important in in a traditionally male-dominated sector like aerospace. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that program and uh, and what it's looking to accomplish in that area? It's it's a fantastic program in my opinion. And Charity and I were both at a meeting in 2017 run by the United Nations, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs and the Office of Women, which is specifically looking at how to get more women and girls involved in space. And this is important on a you know a number of levels because you know we we humanity can't further its aims to become a multi-planetary species if women are not part of that and just to give you one figure in in Australia only 16% of the people working in space industry 
are women. So we need to have more of a voice around the table. And what the United Nations program aimed to do, so we had this meeting in 2017 to, I guess, kind of scope out what some of the issues were and think about what some of the ways forward were. And one of the ways forward was to create the Space for Women program. And part of that was the appointment of mentors from uh, many different parts of the world who could be in their region uh, a kind of a catalyst for activities that would um, raise the awareness of the issues, um, give girls and women of all ages an opportunity to, to be mentored, uh, to be taken seriously and feel like they could be uh, assisted in furthering their goals. And 35 women were appointed as part of this network. And the first stage of the program is, is just sort of winding up right now and the ultimate aim of this is actually to feed into the united nations sustainable development goals so sustainable development goal four is education and five is gender equity so the program is basically leveraging people within their geographic region who can bring all of their connections and networks and passion and ideas to inspiring i don't want to make it all about inspiration because it's an overused word particularly in space but it's it is kind of the role model thing people often say you, you can't be what you can't see and the space for women program is a reason it, it is something which highlights the existence of these women connects women across the world and creates a structure to to run activities and events and programs that will help get girls and women uh feeling more part of space and i think that's just so critically important at the moment only 11.5 percent of all of the people who have traveled into space have been women it's 2021 11.5%. So something has to change. Yeah, clearly. Well, there's the steps to do it. And, uh, you know, great that you and Charity are both part of that uh, to make those changes because it does have to happen. We can't we can't continue in the way we're going. So that's fantastic. And I, I'd like um, to just note yeah, that, Charity. you know, there's the other flip side of the coin here where space empowers women on Earth, right? Women are disadvantaged through climate change and lack of access to, um, you know, internet and things like that. So bridging those gaps, space can play a, a huge role in supporting women on earth too. Absolutely true. Such a great message. Such a great message. So I think we're going to, uh, be closing out. Um, we have a, we have a question, uh, Alice, that we like to ask all of our guests and we, we didn't prepare you for this, so mm -hmm. it, it might be tough. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> we uh, we we like to ask people, and I think you're interested in this. So I'll I'll even I'll even preface it with this. I think the most famous movie archaeologist for me oh was Indiana no. Jones, right? <laughs> so no, but I, I'm going to ask you. I, I would see like I could see like a space archaeologist Indiana Jones character. I think that movie would be awesome, actually, to show like what what could be done in the future. But my question to you is about uh, space movies. If you could be, or if you could like. The, the character you admire from any space movie or TV show, uh, who who would it be? Well, it's definitely not 
even Indiana Jones in space. Archaeologists have such a difficult, fraught relationship with Indiana Jones. So even if you're oh, yeah. on it, maybe. <laughs> Yes, that's true. That's true. I should. I should. We will. We'll, we should maybe cut that part out too. I'll just ask. No, I don't thing. mind. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, so, this, I, is, I, I, oh, this is a really. I'm trying to think of my favorite space movies. My favorite space movie is Galaxy Quest. Oh, that's a good movie. And that's pretty funny. I yeah. think if I had to, if I had to be one of the characters. I'd have to go Sigourney Weaver in Galaxy yeah. Quest. That's that's a good one. I, I'd actually kind of like to ask about that um, Indiana Jones thing too, though, and like the connection. I guess it's oh. it's too like does he does he destroy too much stuff? Is that oh the issue? god? Yeah, he's just like a looter. He just goes to other countries <laughs> and loot sites. So he's that's epic. right. He doesn't follow uh, the rules. He does not. Uh, <laughs> there's that's a good no. Point. We we really. Most archaeologists, so we, we kind of like, we love it that those movies meant so much to so many people and that for a lot of people it was sort of an inspiration to get into archaeology. But it's very classical civilizations focused, so Indigenous people mm. don't get much of a look in there. Um, it's very artifact focused in the context. So, you know, we often get people that come to us, they'll find something in a field and they'll bring it to us and say, tell me what this is and say, well, it could have been interesting if you'd left it where it was, where we had the context, but <laughs> now that you've taken it out of that context, oh, it's, it's meaningless. So, And just the whole, That's... you know, going to other countries and looting their heritage, we don't love it. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's not really a model that we. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I should watch it again under that under that with that lens. So maybe it's we a really funny this... thing that the Indiana Jones tenure letter. And um, it's, I'm sure you can find it on the internet. It's a response to his application for tenure and it goes through right. all of the terrible things he's done and why he can't have tenure. That's so, great. yeah, it's hilarious. I'll check that out. <laughs> Did you have another question, Charity? I'm just going to let this keep rolling. Yeah, yeah, Go yeah. Ahead. Do you have another well, question? Well, um, <laughs> I was thinking maybe we should ask her the second surprise question. Yeah, do it. Go for it. But do it. Before, like, I've had a question all this whole uh, podcast. So, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful it um, doesn't put you on the spot, but I'm. So interested in hearing your your insights on indigenous Australians and their connections to space. Could you could you highlight? Because I've a, I, I've watched very few movies about Australia, and yeah. but but the ones I've seen, it, it stays in my mind that indigenous peoples are are very connected to space, and they know it very well. And I was wondering if you have some insight on that. Um, yeah, no, well, we like to say in Australia that uh, Indigenous culture here is the oldest continuous culture in the world. And of course, it has an incredible astronomical tradition as well. And the movements of the stars uh, are very intimately connected to the constitute the social and political constitution of Aboriginal identity. And are used to regulate and structure uh, pre-invasion activities around um, subsistence, you know, food gathering, ritual, ceremony, um, learning and knowledge. It's, so it's a, a hu hugely important uh, part of Indigenous culture. And at the moment, um, we've had an amazing thing where, where 
people are starting to recognize that this isn't about mythology or beliefs, that this is actually also about science. And I've got some colleagues here in Australia who've been doing some wonderful work with different communities about recording and preserving their sky knowledge. But there's more than that as well. Um, well, I think it's really in, in the space world, you know, we tend to have a view of space which is sort of dominated by Western capitalist views. And this is sort of very recent, you know, last few centuries. And for most of human history, people have had engagements with the sky and the heavens and the stars and the planets, which are based on very different kinds of worldviews, which don't get uh, enough acknowledgement, I guess. But I want to also be very clear here, because it's very easy when you're talking about this stuff to relegate these beliefs to the past or to use it as part of a very colonial construction of Indigenous people as um, primitive, which I say in very strong, scary, inverted commas. And something I'm seeing in the space world at the moment, a lot of people are talking about what Indigenous worldviews can offer to us in terms of broadening the ways we engage with space and doing that more ethically uh, and more sustainably. And I think that's great and really important. But what often happens in this process is that Indigenous people's interests are then focused around um, this kind of knowledge and they're not given a seat at the table when it comes to mm. technology and services. So it can also be uh, something that masks the fact that Indigenous people are often very disempowered when it comes to decisions about technology. So while I think it is fantastic that many in the space community are now very open to looking at different cultural perspectives, I also think it's really important to not think that is all that needs to be done. Wow. Um... Thank you for that. And I think that's that's a lesson that um, those in the space community, including us, Chris, you know, we can take back and, and kind of, um, you know, make sure that we are not following suit of the some mistakes of the last you know few centuries in astronomy. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's good to be cognizant of all of that. That's I appreciate that. And Sorry, so, I do have rather strong feelings. on. No, I, oh, I, good. I, I appreciate great. that. Um, Okay, so Chris, do you want me to take the last one? Go for then, it. Take the last okay. one. All right. Okay, so we're back into um, creativity mode here, Alice. Uh, so mm -hmm. we are a space future focused podcast, and we're wondering what your three predictions would be mm. about the space ecosystem. What does it look like 15, 20 years from now, mm. say 2035, or maybe even up to 2050? No, no, no. Twenty thirty-five. It's it's more you know manageable. But um, let us know what what's on your mind. What do you predict the space ecosystem is going to look like? Oh, that is that is the question. <laughs> I guess I may be more pessimistic than I want to be about this. So I think. In 15, 20 years' time, 
I think despite the great efforts of AstroScale, I think it's quite likely that we'll be looking at an even more critical situation in Earth orbit. I don't think we will have made that much progress to cleaning it up. I think things will have come to a head with the international space treaties. And again, I think we're, we're sort of close to tipping one way or another. So it wouldn't surprise me if in that time frame we see an abandonment of the Outer Space Treaty, which I think would be a disaster. And I also see the rise of commercial operators like some of the space barons um, eclipsing the role of national agencies and totally reshaping um, our engagement with space. So that's kind of where I see things going and it's not actually all that optimistic, which I'm surprised mm. by, but I guess that's what I think. Yeah, but you know, it, even just to be, again, cognizant of that perspective, it helps us to prepare for it. Because I recognize that all of the things you're saying uh, are certainly feasible. Uh, that's 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 a high possibility that all of that could happen. So if we can try to prepare for that uh, maybe uh, unfortunate future situation now and see what we can do to make sure that doesn't happen, I think it's incumbent on all of us to do all of the things, convince people of the potential geopolitical issues that might be coming, convince people that the issue of debris is going to be a problem. We need to balance commercial and, and government activities. We're aware of it. How can we make sure to, to not prevent that that future timeline? And, well, right, and Chris, even... that's a much more positive way to look at it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was going to say, it, it motivates us to redouble our efforts. Yeah. You know, hearing about these predictions, of, you know, of course it's prediction, but I think it's it's based on a lot of you know, good sense, Alice, of what we're seeing today. And uh, do we have, you know, a center of gravity of, of folks that are willing to move forward and, and think sustainably and, and mm. you know, go out and do it. So, yeah, um, this is good. I mean, good. just hearing a rosy, rosy predictions of the future is not necessarily beneficial. We need yeah. to be recognize um, this, uh, this other side. So, Okay, I don't well, feel so bad now. <laughs> no, no, it's good. We need we need these opinions, Alice. That's great. Um, so listen, thank you so much, Alice, for joining us. This was a really fascinating conversation, and and like I said, we could we could probably talk for several more hours on this. Um, you can find Alice Gorman tweeting at Doctor Space Junk, and her book Doctor Space Junk versus the Universe can be found online. I've checked and it's gotten great reviews across the web. Uh, anything else you want to mention, Alice, uh, to let the listeners know about? Uh, no, except thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about some issues close to my heart. And I really do applaud the work that AstroScale is doing because I think you're currently leading the pack in people who are making practical solutions to some of our most pressing environmental problems. Thanks so much, Alice. Well, we look forward to talking again in the future and, and working together. So thanks so much. Thank so. you.